Ah, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical realities of today. And what do I got for you today? We have a lot to talk about. We have a new BBC report on Russian casualties. We have Zelensky hinting at an attack on Transnistria. Russia drifting towards a total annexation of Ukraine. We're going to talk about the problems with the debt ceiling proposal. We talked about that yesterday, but we're going to talk about this today. And then we'll get into the world order returning to the way it once was. All that and more coming up. Now, before we get into today's episode, I got a message. Actually, I got a message back in January, but I I usually just don't expect people to send me messages, but I checked and saw that there was one, sorry, it took so long to get to it, from Harold, and he asked a number of questions. He asked me to define geopolitics. He asked me to, uh, and I'll just do that right now. So geopolitics is how countries, specifically governments, interact with one another in relation to their interests and their ambitions which themselves are largely determined by their geography and you know their geography their borders and their specific government types and of course their relationships with other countries or even a, a group of people within a country and the relationships that they have with other peoples in other countries it's it's complex when you dig into the details of it but ultimately you're looking at how people interact with one another so it's going to be that way but when you step back and you take the 40,000 foot view, trust your eyes and your ears and what you see and you hear, you can get a pretty good picture of what's going on around the world. And as you can probably tell by my doing this podcast, it's something that fascinates me. So that's a uh, geopolitics. Uh, he asked me to section the episodes and uh, I, I'll try to do that. I'll try to do that. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll uh, take each segment. You know, when we move from topic to topic, I'll try to take each segment and maybe cut those up into smaller pieces and release them throughout the week. Uh, more content, not new content, but more content, uh, bite-sized content, so people don't have to sit through the entire uh, two, two hours. This was the length of my last episode, so I'll try to do that. It'll ha- it'll have to do different things on the back end here, because like I, I usually just go until the I reach the limit on how long I can record, so I probably have to be more mindful of how I'm spending my time. But I can try to do that. And then as far as providing sources, because he also asked me to provide sources, I do name a lot of where I get my info. I usually name it before I give it. And I try not to assert things that I hear that I don't necessarily have a solid source for, but that I think might be a possibility. So I, I don't I try. I try not to. Maybe I don't come off that way, but I try not to assert them as truths when I can't necessarily confirm them. But I'll bring them to you if I think it's a possibility even if I disagree with it. And uh, routinely, I bring up the possibility that Ukraine could break through Russia's lines and they could go all the way to Crimea. That's what other people are talking about, but I don't think it's going to happen. But uh, another example being the Russian offensive, the Russian winter offensive that we were talking about last year. And I said, oh, it seems like it might happen at this time, you know, late November, early December. Ah, good old foolish me thinking I knew what the Russian military was going to do. Oh, boy. But yeah, I try not to assert things I don't know is true. And I do 
give a lot of my sources before I even uh, talk about them. But that's uh, all the questions I got from Harold. And uh, yeah, you can send me questions on the podcast. I use Anchor, so I don't know if you have to use Anchor specifically or Spotify to send questions, but it's it's there. I usually don't check it, but yeah, it's there. But now, now we get into the rapid fire news. So we have Russia now targeting Ukrainian decision-making centers, uh, and that being people as well, because it's not just, oh, here's the command center. It's it's people, the decision makers, which technically, I guess, is a de- if you are a person that makes decision, you are technically a decision-making center yourself, uh, which is itself an escalation on the Russian part in the war. We've seen plenty of escalations on the other side, but the Russians are generally slower to escalate. But when they do escalate, it's, it's pretty meaningful. The last time we saw them escalate, it was with the deployment of what I call the super heavy artillery. Those uh, multiple rocket launch systems carrying thermobaric missiles. That is an escalation. You that, That's not special military operation. That's I'm going to annihilate everything in my side. And I think that that's what we're getting to. Like the Russians still haven't declared the war. They're at war, obviously, but they haven't declared it and they don't treat it like a full on war. Otherwise, the hundreds of thousands of men that they have just chilling out around the border region would have been deployed. Um, Ukraine's flanks are wide open. Like if Russia sent in, I don't know, another 200, 300,000 men in from the north, what is Ukraine going to do about that? What, they're going to weaken the lines that they have in the south and just get eaten alive from every direction? Ukraine doesn't exactly have much to defend against that, let alone if the Russians sent in a third prong by, like, Kharkov, a a counter raid into the Kharkov region uh, as a response to the the Belgrade incursion that we talked about. If Russia really wanted to, this war could be over in a matter of months, but they're really, really taking their time here. And as they take their time, the Ukrainians grow more desperate and they resort to more acts of terrorism. And as they resort to more acts of terrorism, the Russians start to slide away from the special military operation view of this war towards a counterterrorism operation view of this war. Now, how long that will go on for? I don't know. It could go on for uh, maybe as long as the special military operation has gone on for, or maybe it'll go on for a few months before the Russians just get it, declare the war and get it over with. And then boom, now you have a formal war declared and the full might of the Russian military goes in. We're talking planes, we're talking tanks, we're talking the million men that they've mobilized over the past year. So we're seeing the escalation on the Russian side. And it's getting to that point where they might actually declare the war, which would mean them putting their full force into this instead of keeping a handful of men in Ukraine and just eating away at Ukraine and by proxy eating away at everything that NATO sends to Ukraine. Uh, That's going to be something that will be interesting to hear people talk about when the war is over. Because, you know, you have to wait until the war is over for people to really take stock of all the things that we did, Uh, just like Afghanistan. Who knew we had so much equipment just sitting around in uh, Afghanistan doing nothing. And then we left it there for the Afghanis to take. So uh, the post-war reflections uh, beyond even my glorious episode in the making, and I will have to do a segment in that episode talking about the decline of Ukraine, the descent of Ukraine from 
a formal nation state into a terrorist state, uh, obviously in their attempt to survive. But that is a very interesting thing that I'll try to lay out in a cohesive manner when I get around to that reflections episode. That that episode, actually, now that I think about it, is going to be really, really long. But moving on, we have Turkish troops deployed to Kosovo. Uh, so we see Turkey is working with NATO on at least something. But let's be real here. They're doing whatever they want. <laughs> They're doing whatever they want. And now they have an excuse to have influence in the Balkans. Which, now that I think about it, now that I think about it, this act, this one ties into what we're going to talk about a little bit um, later on in the episode. But this also has a lot of historical significance here because the Turks got kicked out of the Balkans a long time ago by the people living there, namely the certain the Slavic peoples. Well, unless you, I don't think the Greeks are necessarily Slavic, but they were the first to rebel against the Ottomans successfully. And then you had the Balkan Wars, of course, which really just ate away at their control over, over what they had left. I mean, the Austrians were always there eating land. They had, they already had Croatia. They stole Hungary off the Ottomans. The, the Hungarians used to be a, a tributary of the Ottomans. And then they took uh, Bosnia, which today is Bosnia-Herzegovina, but back then it was just Bosnia, you know, around the Crimean War time period. And then you had the Balkan Wars. And ever since the Balkan Wars, ever since Turkey was, the Ottomans were kicked out of Europe almost entirely. They, they have uh, the little bit of Europe on the other side of the Straits where Ederne is and the other half of Istanbul, because Istanbul is a big city. But they've been kicked out of Europe for quite some time. And now their troops are returning to a place that they have not been in over 100 years. This is very historically significant, even if the actual true presence themselves isn't in all that meaningful. This is huge. Because every country in this region, particularly in the southern half of the Balkans, got their independence from the Ottoman Empire after being ruled by them for hundreds of years. And now the Ottomans return. That is very historically significant. I'm, uh, it's it sort of all just uh, just come to me as like an epiphany. I'm like, oh my goodness, because I, I initially just wrote it down as, oh, this happened, and then I moved on. But now that I'm really uh, focusing on it, this is massive, from a, again, from a, a symbolic historical perspective. The Ottomans are back in the Balkans after nearly 100 years of absence. At a time when the Middle East is rising, and the West is in decline. And we're going to talk about that uh, towards the end of the episode, because I finally pieced together my thoughts on uh, that whole dynamic emerging in the world order. But we have Australia and Indonesia agreeing to military cooperation in the form of joint training exercises and uh, giving Indonesians access to Australian academies. And you could essentially read that piece of news as Australia finally looks at a map. <laughs> And, and realizes that there's a gigantic country between them and China, the country that they're so afraid of. Like I, I talked about it back in, what was it, my AUKUS, AUKUS and the Naval Arms Race, I think was the name of that episode, where I talked about all this stuff, uh, namely using the, the 
deal between Australia, the United Kingdom, and U.S. to build essentially American submarines uh, for Australia, nuclear-powered submarines, instead of the French submarines, who previously had a deal with Australia, but then they got rid of them. We use that as an uh, as an excuse. Sort of, I, I try to use current stories as an excuse to dump what I have on my mind to you guys. But we use that to talk about the region and Australia's relationship in this uh, emerging Cold War framework type thing, or the anti-China coalition. And it just didn't make sense to me how Australia could be so afraid of China. They are, of all the countries who have China as a neighbor... Australia isn't exactly one of them. I mean, like, I have a, a map of the world on my wall right now. They are quite a ways away. Like, they're, they're farther away from China than Guam is. And Guam is 3,000 miles away. Well, 2,900 miles away from China. Australia is farther away. They're, they're about as far away from China as we are from Europe. So it's like, how are you this scared of this country? Like, Sure, if they went on the war path and they started island hopping, they could get to you. It's not like you're untouchable. You don't have miles of ocean between you and them. But you do have this gigantic, massive, and very populous country called Indonesia sitting between you and them. You even have the, you have the Philippines, you have Malaysia, Brunei, you have Papua New Guinea. There, you don't need to consult with that many countries to keep China at bay, especially if you can get Indonesia on side. Like, if you're that scared of China, then you need to be building alliances with Indonesia. I said as much. It just, and now they finally got around to it. You know, looking at a map really does do wonders, but they've finally gotten around to it. So this is a good thing for Australia. Hopefully they don't drag Indonesia into a war with China over Taiwan. And hopefully they don't ruin their relationship with Indonesia over Taiwan. Because if we look at how the West has responded to countries that didn't go all in on Ukraine, it's a possibility that they might, that the Australians might burn bridges that didn't need to be burned when the Taiwan war happens. And that we really will leave them isolated. And potentially, I don't want to say that they will, but there's the potential that they could put themselves in a very precarious situation where they could be invaded. Again, I don't think the Chinese have ambitions of going all the way down to uh, Australia, but who's to say that at some point in time, the Indonesians won't find an excuse. You, you, you never know what these things. But yeah, we'll, we'll have to look at that as it unfolds. But at the, for the time being, Australia is doing something rather useful for itself. They're going in and making... Uh, deals and agreements with their giant neighbor to the north, who happens to be a buffer between them and China. You have uh, U.S. and Chinese naval vessels nearly colliding in the Taiwan Straits. Now, eventually, someone, perhaps a decade, perhaps two or three decades from now, some young chap in school is going to ask, Teacher, what were American ships doing in the Taiwan Straits? And why did they almost crash into the Chinese? And, you know, I won't have an answer for that kid. <laughs> Not that I'm going to be his teacher, unless, they're, unless they play this in school. Oh, my goodness. Could you imagine that? I, I don't know if I'm school-friendly material. Not with, not with my foul mouth. But 
it it really will be something to reflect upon our actions in the current day. But you have this happening. You have Saudi Arabia cutting oil production by one one and a half million barrels a day to bring the oil prices back up. And again, again, I I know I bring it up every time. I know I bring it up every time. Good. That, that's because I won't let it go. We would be thanking the Arabians for doing this. If we were still energy independent, we can get. We gotta get the. We gotta get this Biden guy up out of here. We get. He has. He has. He's gotta go. Okay. He's gotta go. I no. I don't want up up up. I don't. No no. He didn't. No. Mm-mm. No. I don't care about that. No. He he's gotta go. He he's gotta go. Uh, we have that. We have Australia and Indonesia. Oh wait, we already talked about that. I ended up skipping past a couple of my notes. We have a, the ceasefire in Sudan. Uh, if you remember, there was a. Should I say coup, an attempted coup or a, a power struggle? I think I'll settle on a power struggle for now, because I'm still not entirely sure what went down to make this happen. But a power struggle between the rapid support forces, that being the militias of Sudan and the military of Sudan, it they broke out and they started fighting, and this led to the crisis in Sudan. We talked about it in my episode, labeled as such. Uh, it was very a very spicy ending to that. When I, I also talked about Taiwan and why we shouldn't be involved in Taiwan in that episode, uh, but that's to be expected from this podcast. But now, because we talked about them trying to make a ceasefire, and they did succeed in getting the peace fight. There was a little bit of fighting as they were trying to, you know, establish the peace, the temporary peace, and they did succeed in getting that ceasefire. But where they failed was in making it last because now the ceasefire has expired and Sudan, they, there's no new deal in place. So now you have the, a resumption of the fighting and 40 people are dead as a result of the violence. And that's just on Sunday. So th- today's Monday, we could be looking at 100 people dead already, depending on how badly this has gotten. And according to one source, uh, namely the outlet Business Day, uh, they say that 400,000 people have fled the country. They say about 1.2 million have been displaced within the country, which is believable considering how many people were trying to get out of Khartoum, the, the capital city of the country, when the fighting broke out. So you combine that with... Uh, dispersed clashes throughout the country and the rebels the rebels being the rapid support forces claiming control over essentially the entire southwest portion of the country and it's believable that a lot of people would be on the move right now and believable that a lot of people would be fleeing the country right now not just people who were not necessarily citizens of sudan but were citizens of other countries fleeing to those other countries i mean we talked about the the French, American, and British getting their uh, their people out in various ways and with varying degrees of success. We have Ukraine, Ukraine launching what appears to be a probing attack along the front lines. That uh, that seems to be what's happening here. That's the general consensus between the, the Duran, between um, uh, dang who's. Uh, <laughs> between the Duran, between Jackson Hinkle, between uh, what was his name? He was. I literally just watched the interview that Jackson did with him. Uh, I I will find it. I will find it. But that appears to be 
what's gone on for the time being a probing attack on the Russian lines by Ukraine to try to see if they can get through, if they can find some sort of weak spot and maybe, maybe if they can find a weak point, then they can push further and commit more troops. Cause that, that's sort of how it, it, that's sort of how the, the Soviet doctrine is. I say the Soviet doctrine because that's ultimately where Russia and Ukraine both get their military doctrine from. The, the Soviets, uh, particularly with regards to defense in depth, which is something that both of them have used extensively. And defense in depth is imagine what were one on the Western Front, except you extended by like five, ten trenches behind the main lines. And yeah. It's something mighty fierce, fierce enough to stop the Blitzkrieg. So, uh, yeah, calibrated with a uh, Scott. That, that, that's what it was. The uh, that, That's the name of the channel. So, so Scott as well. Uh, going back to my sources. But it appears that we have a probing attack because there, there weren't that many Ukrainians committed to the initial attack. We did. There is re- a report that around 200 dead or 200 casualties. Don't know if it really ended up being that many, although I, I can believe it, but I don't know if there's that many. Though there is another report that uh, 10 tanks were destroyed, Ukrainian tanks. Uh, another one, the Russian Ministry of Defense says that 16 Ukrainian tanks were destroyed. And they're the ones who reported that around 200 Ukrainians were uh, reported as casualties. They reported 200 casualties. So, it appears that we do have an attack, a major attack on Russia's lines. And they appear to be focused on the parts of the front closest to the Black Sea, which hints at a Ukrainian attempt to essentially cut off or make untenable the position of all the Russian troops further along in the land bridge. You know, it, all the Russian troops in Zaporizhia in Kherson, the Ukrainians look like they want to go for the big maneuver to force the Russians out. That's what it looks like to me. And that would actually be a smart move. But the Russians have heavily fortified that part of the line because they understood it to be a, a weakness. And the Russians, meanwhile, are appear to be on the move in the northern parts of the front, advancing towards Avdeevka, and towards uh, Kharkiv. Uh, not, they're not exactly close to Kharkiv, but they're moving in that direction. So we do have movement on multiple parts of the front. And as far as this being a probing attack, uh, a probing attack for what? Uh, well, it would have to be that counteroffensive that we've been hearing and talking about for months now. Well, of course, we'll just have to wait and see what becomes of it as it plays out over the next few weeks. And if it actually is the actual offensive that we've been talking about, if it is, we don't know that. We don't know. But if it is, because Ukraine has been put under a lot of pressure, if it is the offensive, then uh, honestly, what more is there to say other than uh, this is it? This is the make or break moment of the war. Or whenever the offensive does begin. Again, we don't know if this is it. Well, to look and watch as it develops, but this is it. 
this will be the make or break moment of the war. Either Ukraine will surprise everyone with a decisive victory and actually push and pursue Russia all the way out of Ukraine's territory, or like Germany in 1918, they'll throw away the remainder of their effective fighting force and be left with the choice to either sue for peace or suffer a slow grinding collapse of their country. And I fear that the Ukrainians are going to go down that second path. I'm not, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you if it wasn't clear what my thoughts on that already were. I'm afraid that they will choose option two because they're constantly given options for peace. They're, Multiple peace proposals have been floated from a lot of different countries. Now you're even starting to see more countries, Indonesia being the latest, proposing a demilitarized zone along the contact line where everyone, both sides pull back by like 15 miles. Now the Ukrainians already said no, even though that would be a de facto, a de facto Minsk four agreement. I uh, have the, the de facto Minsk three being that you lose uh, Crimea and the Donbass de facto Minsk four being status quo where you lose both of those. And then you lose Zaporizhia and Kherson on top of it, which is the status quo of the war. Unofficial Minsk five is that you lose everything east of the Dnieper. Minsk six is total annexation. These are my unofficial Minsk agreement deals. Because uh, if you remember, Russia came into the war suing for peace and there were two Minsk agreements before that which were much nicer to the Ukrainians. And I'm sure that they would love to take those deals now, but you got to recognize the pattern. The deal isn't going to get any better. So it's better to take the deal that you can get. They've already flat out refused, but we all, we, even in light of the refusals to make peace, we are starting to see more international pressure on outside countries, even ones that aren't necessarily pro Ukraine. There is more pressure to put this war, to bring this war to an end. And that might eventually force Russia's hand. And that's the real player here because the Ukrainians are going to go for as long as we give them money and weapons. And that might actually end in the, the total destruction of Ukraine as a state. But if international pressure builds up enough from the non-Western world, because Russia doesn't really care what our opinion is at this point, if the non-Western world has a large enough consensus that the war needs to end, then that might force Russia's hands and they might be forced to accept a peace, although they'll it'll be on their terms either way, either way. But that is the uh, not so rapid fire news, and we'll get into the meat of this episode in just a moment. Alrighty, time to get into the meat of today's episode, and we're gonna start with this new BBC report on Russian casualties. And I think this is this will be a, a nice chance to sort of close out this little mini arc we've had talking about various news outlets and the casualty figures that they've been releasing, uh, particularly as it pertains to the Russian side of the war. I almost said size, so I had to sort of uh, hold my tongue. But we have this new report from the BBC. And they put the total number of Russian soldiers killed in the war at 24,470. Now, I would like, before we uh, before we dig too deep into that, I would like to see the casualties, as this is just deaths. Uh, so it's not counting wounded soldiers. So you could easily be looking at, if, if oh my goodness. But you could easily be looking at 100,000, perhaps, perhaps. You know, it could be higher. It could be actually be 
200,000 if we're talking casualties, but specifically looking at the dead. 24,470 is what the BBC confirms. And they are not a pro-Russian outlet. And they've been very anti-Russia this whole time. So, yeah, 24,000. And that, as you could probably guess, just based on, a, the, again, the little mini arc we've been having on the podcast, talking about these various numbers and casualty figures, uh, this is very, very, very different from the fantastical numbers we've been getting uh, previously. John Kirby uh, just said a few weeks ago that 20,000 Russians had died in Bakhmut alone. Uh, and we were, we were, I mean, we were just talking about these numbers and how it's like, how, how do you get, how do you get there? How do you get to that conclusion? And like the U.S. government, the U.S. government in particular, believed that Russia had lost two hundred thousand since December, not not throughout the whole war, uh, two hundred thousand men since December of last year. And they were saying that back in January and February. It's like, so what? The Russians are taking half a million casualties? And, and we've been, again, we've gone over these numbers. But to see the, this very different figure put out, 24,000. And let, let's, let's uh, triple that number and say that triple that number is the casualties. And say 75,000 casualties. For the whole war. That's still a lot less than 200,000 casualties since December. And that's certainly a lot less than 20,000 in Bakhmut alone. Uh, unless you want to imply that the Russians only lost 4,000 men over the course of the entire war, including the months uh, leading up to the fall of Bakhmut. Uh, like the entirety of the war outside of Bakhmut, they only lost f- almost four and a half thousand men, and then they lost twenty thousand fighting in Bakhmut alone. Now, if we take this number, and we take uh, Prigozhin's numbers when he was talking about Wagner, half of these total casualties came from Wagner because he said that ten thousand out of his fifty thousand men. Oh, because remember we talked about a. Uh, the Wagner forces when they captured Bakhmut and he gave his numbers. 50,000 men is what he had. 10,000 he says were killed. We'll take him at face value. 10,000 he says were killed. 10,000 were wounded. And that leaves the other 30,000. Fine. So if the BBC is reporting that 24,470 in total Russians have been killed, and they're obviously not necessarily going to separate uh, Wagner from the Russian main army, then that would mean that two-fifths, 40% of the casualties came from Wagner fighting in Bakhmut. And that's 10,000 men, not 20,000. So it's very, very different numbers that we're looking at now. Again... Uh, I keep harping back on this because it's very important to stress the difference here. We've been hearing that Russia's lost hundreds of thousands of men. We've been hearing from the U.S. side that Russia is 
totally defeated. Oh, I can't wait. Uh, I can't wait to get into the, the Millie thing when we do the, the reflections episode. Because that that if you guys saw that video back in, I think it was March when General Millie was at the at this press thing speaking on the situation in Ukraine. He said the Russians are defeated strategically, militarily. <laughs> that's going to be so. Oh, my goodness. That's going to be actual comedy gold to reflect on when this war is over. Because it's clear he says that and then Bakhmut falls. So either he's lying or my eyes are lying. And I think he's the one who's lying. But we hear 200,000. Hundreds of thousands of men is, is what we're being told that the Russians have lost throughout this war. And then you get 24,470. That's 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 a really 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 big difference. You don't just uh, uh, round down and get a difference like that. Something else has to be afoot here. Something else has to be afoot, and I think that what we're witnessing is that they're trying to get ahead of the story. I think that what we are about to witness is perhaps the greatest about face ever made in news media history these news agencies and companies who have been literally spewing propaganda pro-ukrainian propaganda the entire war are about to be put in a position courtesy of the ukrainian counteroffensive and then the russian response to that offensive they are about to be put in a position where everything that they have been talking about is about to be exposed as a lie and we've already seen a glimpse of that with Bakhmut, where they went from talking, where they went from not talking about it at all, mind you. They, you you had you had to go to Scott Ritter, Douglas McGregor, you had to go to Jimmy Dore, the Duran, to even hear the word Bakhmut. Back then, then it was Bakhmut is this major important piece of defense in the Ukrainian line, and the Russians can't capture it. It's so well defended. Uh, it's the key to the Donbass and the Ukrainians are going to hold on to it. Zelensky comes to Washington and gives a speech talking about how Bakhmut stands. Bakhmut stands. And then we have Bakhmut falling. But now after Bakhmut has fallen, it's, it has no strategic value. They, the, the Ukrainians lured the Russians into a trap, even though the Russians said back in December, that they were going to change tactics and just use Bakhmut as a meat grinder to destroy as many Ukrainian troops as possible since Ukraine was just continuously reinforcing in Bakhmut, even though they claim it had no strategic value, even though it did. It, it did have strategic value. It was at the center of their fortifications. It was at the center of the region's logistics. Uh, now, granted, that much didn't mean too much by the end of the siege well, not necessarily the siege, but the battle of Bakhmut, as the Russian that essentially captured all the land around Bakhmut. So there's not much in the way of logistics that you can have when you don't have any of the land around the city. But we've seen this arc go from not talking about it at all to, oh, it's it's never going to fall. Bakhmut still stands after all this time. Give us more money. So now it's not strategically important. We've already seen them have to readjust to reality, not matching up with their narrative 
and reality being made uh, clear and present to the average viewer. So you can lie to someone for quite a while, but when the lie is exposed by the, the very thing that you're lying about, well, that ruins your credibility. So you have to get ahead of the story. You have to say, oh, things have changed so dramatically. It's Now it's a trap. Ukraine has lost back, but now it's a trap to see how many Russians they can destroy. And essentially what the BBC has also admitted with these casualties, not these casualties, with this death figure, is that you, Ukraine didn't exactly do a very good job in their grinding down of Russia, in their trap at Bakhmut that they set for the Russians. They clearly didn't do a good job. If that is true, which it's not, it, it, the idea that this is a trap set by Ukraine for the Russians, no, it's the other way around. The Russians... It wasn't even a trap set by the Russians. It was just the Russians deciding, okay, well, if you're going to keep reinforcing, we're just going to bomb you with artillery. Bye. <laughs> and every now and then, we'll just send in a couple men to take a, a city block or two. And they ended up taking the city and grinding down 100,000 Ukrainians. 80 to 100,000 Ukrainians. Uh, it, it, that, that's the estimates on the podcast. Because, again, I'm trying to lowball Ukraine's losses but the range is 60 to 160,000. Prigorjian puts it at 120,000. So you lost, if we're going to go with my numbers, which is a flattering for the Ukrainian side, compared to what they could be looking at, compared to what the actual number might actually be, because the Ukrainians know, Prigorjian has an idea, I'm still lowballing. So if we go with my numbers instead of anyone else's numbers, which is 80 to 100,000, and we're just going to go with 80,000. Well, you lost 80,000 men to kill 10,000 and wound another 10,000. That's a terrible ratio. That's four to one. You suffered a, a, a well, actually, no, that, that's a one to four ratio. For every one man you killed, you lost four. You suffered a one to four ratio. That's a terrible trap. So what these numbers inadvertently admit is that Ukraine got decimated in Bakhmut and that they failed to destroy much of Ukraine, of Russia's military in Bakhmut. Well, they, they failed to destroy much of Russia's military as a whole throughout the war. That, that's also a thing. But in particular, Bakhmut. So we're starting to see the the script get changed they're starting to flip the script because now you can't lie about it. you can't lie about it if you have high intensity conflict and the war goes from being a static war to a war of movement again because then it the the proof is going to be in the pudding oh the russians captured this piece of land oh they captured this piece of land oh they captured 10 20 30 miles okay well, what, what did the ukrainians get oh uh, oh, oh they lost that Okay, well, oh, oh, they lost that. They lost that city too. Okay, well, they have the river line. Oh, they, the Russians have a bridgehead. Okay, um, so how many people are we losing? See, when the war goes from being a, a static war where you can hide behind the fact that the front line hasn't moved to make these radical claims of hundreds of thousands of Russian losses and uh, minimal Ukrainian casualties. Oh, they bloodied Russia's nose. Oh, they did this. Oh, the Ukrainians are doing that. The, 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 the Storm Shadow missiles are game changers. The HIMARS missiles are game changers. Oh, I'm going to have to do a segment talking about all the, the Wonder Weapons, the Wonder Weapons segment on the news 
and I think that'll, that'll be a part of the overall coverage of the news and media timeline, uh, the, the narrative timeline of this war. Not in the course of the events, but the course of the news coverage of the events. Yeah, uh, all these wind weapons. Oh, if we just give them tanks. First, it was if we give them the javelins and the uh, the javelins and the stingers. If we give them the javelins and the stingers, they'll be able to they'll be able to beat the Russians. Oh, if we give them high Mars, it's gonna change the game. Oh, if we give them long range, they need long range missiles. No, we. We're not going to give them that. We're going to give them tanks. They need tanks. We're going to give them tanks. Then it's oh, we're going to give them, we're going to give them depleted uranium, and storm shadow missile. Well, we're going to give them air defense missiles. We're going to give them uh, Patriot missiles. The Germans are going to give them their uh, special air defense system that they don't even have in their own army. They just produce them and they're going to give them to Ukraine. Then it's and now here we are with oh, we're going to give them F 16s Next thing you know, they're going to be talking about giving them six-engine bombers. We have to we have to give the Ukrainians a B-52. Don't you understand? <laughs> uh, I laugh now, but I wouldn't be surprised if I woke up one day and we're actually having discussions about how we're going to give old B-52s to Ukraine and how we have to train them on how to use the B-52. Now, that'd be something to see. <clears throat> or maybe, maybe they... they up the ante and say we need to give ukraine stealth fighters because they need the edge the extra edge of stealth yeah i can see it but they're trying to get ahead of the story they're trying to get ahead of the story the reality is moving in a way that they can't hide behind it because you you can hide behind all these these things when the war is a stalemate and you can say look the war is a stalemate so clearly the ukrainians are doing something right because otherwise how could they win against big mighty russia even though people who say that simultaneously discount the the credibility of the russian military but now as the war's stalemate phase look like it's it's about to come to a, an end not just from the ukrainian side but from the russian side if the stalemate is over and we go back to a war of movement you can't hide behind a, a front line that stays the same now the front moves and you can see clearly who's winning and it's not going to be the ukrainians so we're we're seeing that these outlets are starting to adjust so that they they don't lose they don't get completely discredited by the results of this war's conclusion being far from what they've been telling us it was going to be this entire time it's it, they're going to they're going to say look we we told you when things were changing and things changed really quickly and suddenly the the things we believed a, a year or two ago were um uh the situation on the ground sort of changed that and so we had to adjust that, that's how it's going to be marketed and a lot of people are going to eat it up but i think a lot more people are going to see that it was a lot so we're starting to see something pretty interesting here another thing we have is zelensky hinting at an attack on transnistria uh actually hold on one second now we have a new segment so now when i finish the episode i can break these up into itty bitty pizzas and release them separately so you're welcome <laughs> but now we have zelensky hinting at an attack on transnistria we've heard some rumblings over the course of this war you had 
at the at the very beginning of the war we had you had talk of oh is what's ukraine gonna do about transnistria then later on like during the summer last year you had a brief flare-up of tensions uh between uh mainly the west and trans and not transnistria and moldova over its i can't even i i can't even tell you what for at this point it was so a while back and it was pretty minor we talked about it on the podcast, so I'll refer you back to that episode. But we've seen the, 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 the murmurs and the rumblings over the course of the war, and perhaps this is just going to be another one of them. Although the, Ukrainian, the Ukrainians are a bit more erratic this time around uh, than they were before, so I don't completely discount the possibility. Uh, granted, I never really did discount the possibility too much, because... Uh, Moldova kind of st- gets in the way of the rest of NATO because Poland has easy access to Ukraine. Lithuania has easy access. Well, actually, what I say that for Lithuania does not have easy access to Ukraine, but Poland does. Hungary does. And then you have Romania. But Romania is really blocked off. Not completely. They obviously they have a border with Ukraine. But there's a giant, uh, there's a giant little, little uh, road bump between them and Ukraine, which is Moldova, and so Moldova's sort of been caught up between the West, trying to pressure everybody into supporting Ukraine, and their own relatively non-hostile position towards Russia. And so you have a, a government in Moldova that is pro-Ukraine. But a large subsect of the Moldovan population that is pro-Russian. And they're openly pro-Russian. So what you get is conflict that has pushed Moldova towards neutrality, thankfully. Uh, Not just for the Ukrainians, but for the Russians and for the Moldovians themselves. The Moldovans themselves. Because if they got drawn into the war, that'd just be unnecessary. They'd just be really unnecessary. Especially with what we're witnessing about to happen with what we're about to witness happen because we're about to witness a tragedy if if this ukrainian counteroffensive really does go off we're going to witness a tragedy lots of men losing their lives and being wounded beyond repair some of them they're going to have legs amputated arms and they're going to lose fingers toes it's it's going to be bad that's what war is it's not a very nice thing so the last thing you want to do is lose lives in a war that you didn't need to fight and that's what's happening here because peace could have been achieved multiple times before in the past specifically before the war even began and right after the war began there was plenty of opportunities to make peace and it they they fell through so it's been a good thing for the moldovans that they haven't been drawn into this war but with ukraine again that dissent into becoming a terrorist state because they were not a terrorist state when the war began this is this has been a process they were not this erratic as they are now when the war began they were a pretty normal if normal they were they were a normal country run by nazis sure but a normal country but over the course of the war we've heard the rumblings of moldova getting drawn into the war and again, there's been a lot of pressure put onto them to do so 
of, of course, the West pressuring them to be on the Ukrainian side and the Russians sort of leaving them alone because the Russians have their own issues to deal with. And the Moldovans settling for neutrality in the conflict or relative neutrality. But now we have Zelensky making comments about attacking the Russian troop presence in Transnistria. And he's when he was asked about the Russians in Transnistria, he said, quote, as for what to do with those who are on the territory with the troops. Well, if they want to live, they will go, end quote. So what does that mean? Well, if you want to live, they will go. He's clearly not talking about the Russians doing anything funny because the Russians have been there the entire time. He's talking about a potential Ukrainian military operation where if you want to live, you'll go. And if you stay, you're going to get shot because it's the military and you are enemy combatants. But the problem with this, the problem with this, and this is probably the reason why the Ukrainians haven't made any attempt to cover their flank from Transnistria either. The problem with this is that Transnistria, while is regarded as a part of Russia by the Russians and widely considered to be essentially a part of Russia, although not necessarily formally recognized by a lot of people as a part of Russia, Transnistria is formally still a part of Moldova. It's a breakaway territory, but the Moldovans regard it as part of Moldovan territory. So in the event that the Ukrainians really do commit to this this uh, strange thing, this strange diversionary attack, because what else can you call it other than a, another Belgrade, uh, an unnecessary incursion into territory outside of Ukraine that does not achieve any meaningful goal? If they actually do attack this, this territory, that being Transnistria, it will, in effect, be an act of war against Moldova. Because Moldova regards Transnistria as a part of Moldova. So even if you attack Transnistria on the grounds that there are Russian troops there, as far as the Moldovans are concerned, you're violating their sovereignty. Now, now perhaps the Moldovans extend, say, an olive branch to the Ukrainians. If, if the, again, this is the, the speculation, if Ukraine attacks and if they're successful, which is the other part of the speculation, although there are only like one, 2,000 Russians there, so it, it wouldn't be that hard. It's not like the Russians there are particularly heavily armed like the Russians in the eastern parts of Ukraine. But if you attack and if you are successful, perhaps the Moldovans give you an olive branch and say, hey, you've taken a piece of our territory. You've pushed the Russians out. Well, we we've like we would like for you to give that back now. Okay. If Ukraine says no, it's a war. Because <laughs> now, now it's you're acting against us, not just Russia, because that's our territory as far as the Moldovans are concerned. So if this happens, if Ukraine pulls a Belograd here and does some, some kind of raid into Transnistria, they will create an allied power for the Russians. Because Moldova wants to stay neutral, the Moldovan government wants to support Ukraine, but it has been pushed into a position of neutrality by the 
the lack of popular sentiment towards that policy, which makes them unique among other many Western countries in that they actually listen to their their their, <laughs> their popular consensus. But if this happens, and again, that's an if, well, we'll talk about it because it's a possibility. If this happens, it's an act of war against Moldova. You will turn Moldova into a Russian ally where they previously were not necessarily an ally to Russia, even if many within Moldova were friendly towards Russia. You'll create a problem for yourself that didn't exist. <clears throat> now the Russians in Transnistria, if you attack and you are not completely successful in driving those Russian forces out, now those forces are not encircled because they have Moldova to retreat into if they have to retreat. And they'll have the Moldovan army on their side. And now Ukraine is going to be faced with a two-front war, which is something that they can't afford to do. They have lots. They still have a, a good number of men at their disposal, Ukraine. But at a time when you're preparing for a counteroffensive, and at a time when the Russians are preparing their own offensive, which will likely sort of use the Ukrainian offensive as a springboard for their own offensive, you don't... You can't afford to be starting up a second front in the opposite direction from where your main front is. You can't afford that. And if the West backs Ukraine in its fight with Moldova, then Moldova will not just be an ally to Russia for the war or for the foreseeable future. They'll perhaps be a Russian ally for the next 100 years. Because you don't... that That kind of thing doesn't exactly leave you on good terms with all the NATO members that are your neighbors, even in the event that NATO, for whatever reason, ceases to exist. The countries that attacked you are still going to be there, even without NATO. So are you going to make peace with them? Or are you going to throw your lot in with the one country that didn't want to drag you into the mess? Russia. Something to think about. Something to think about. But that's the Transnistria thing. Again, we don't necessarily know if that's going to happen. But given that it is a possibility and given the the now established pattern of behavior of the Ukrainian, uh, what do you want to call it? The military, the high command of the Ukrainians. And I don't necessarily mean the, the Ukrainian people, but the Ukrainians, government led forces slash, slash military, given their newly established trend of terrorism. I don't know how else to put it, terrorism. And with the raid into Belgrade, I wouldn't put it past them. And I, I don't know. I, I just, I have less benefit of the doubt now than I would have at an earlier point in the war. I, I have less benefit of the doubt now because they, every time I give them the benefit of the doubt, I, I'm the one who has to come with the correction and say, yeah, they were exactly that bad. So we'll wait and see on that. I don't think it'll happen, but it's a possibility, which is why I bring it to you. So it doesn't necessarily catch us all by surprise. And now we're going to get into Russia, drifting towards a total annexation of Ukraine. So we have two statements here that I'm going to go over. We have Medvedev saying that if the current regime in Ukraine maintains power, then the war will go on forever. 
which is a, a sort of a nice way of saying we're going to need a, a regime change in Ukraine in order to bring the war to an end. That's one thing. And then you have Denis Pushilin, who's the head of the Donetsk Republic, uh, the one of the annexed regions of the Donbass. He says, quote, we have to liberate the whole territory of Ukraine, end quote. He also says that if Ukraine controls even uh, a little bit of the territory, and I'm paraphrasing here, he says if Ukraine can, even if a little bit of Ukraine is still left over when the war is over, he's talking about, then it will continue to be a threat to Russia. This is the closest anyone on either side of this war has gotten to saying that the war is going to end in the way that I said that I believe it will end. That being in the total annexation of Ukraine. And I find it interesting that we have two statements back to back in the span of a week. On top of, you know, Russia now targeting the decision making centers in Ukraine. They haven't started targeting the Ukrainian government directly. They could bomb Kiev if they wanted to. So they haven't gotten to that point yet. But they're targeting the decision-making centers, and you have two major figures in Russia calling one for regime change and the other for the total erasure of a Ukrainian state. Because if you, if you again, according to Prashilin, if even a little bit of Ukraine exists, it'll be a threat to Russia because it'll be armed and equipped by NATO and will be used as a staging ground for attacks against Russia by NATO. And here we go. Again, this is the closest anyone has come to saying that the war is going to end in a complete annexation of Ukraine. But this is... What they're saying right now is essentially what I said. When the war began, because when we looked at Russia's stated war goals, which was denazification of Ukraine, demilitarization... denazification and demilitarization the only way you can achieve those is by having some sort of de facto control over ukraine because you can't denazify you if ukraine is a nazi state you can't try leave the denazification up to them you can't let them choose who the nazis are that they're going to get rid of and then leave the others that they choose well if they're a nazi state you don't let them do that that means you have to be the one to do it if you want demilitarization, you have to, you, that's something you have to get the Ukrainians to sign on to in a treaty. You can't, they're not just going to do it on their own because you say so. But how are you going to get the treaty? You would have to beat them in a war. You would have to get them to sign. You'd have to force them to the table. Both of those required some sort of de facto control by Russia over it, nearly all of Ukraine, if not all of Ukraine. And I said as much when the war began, and I said that, well, if Ukraine joining NATO is the key threat to Russia that Ukraine poses, then you Russia cannot leave any of Ukraine alive. They can't leave a Ukrainian state at the end of this war. Because think about it. And again, I, I said this before, but I'll say it again for the purpose of this conversation. Think about it. If... Ukraine today, 
is as strong as it's ever been. It's fully mobilized. It has all this weapons, all these weapons, all this money, all this equipment from, from NATO. And they're fighting Russia as it is today. And they lose. Ukraine will lose territory. Russia will gain territory. Ukraine's going to lose people. Russia's going to gain people. A lot of those refugees who left Ukraine aren't going back, even when the war's over. So you combine that with massive population declines that going on throughout the West, but particularly bad in Europe, with an expanded Russian state. Well, now the, the calculus changes because now you have a weaker and smaller Ukraine living next door to a larger and stronger Russia. You lost the war to a weaker version of Russia when you and your country was stronger. That being this war right now. So if the war ends and Russia wins, but there's still a piece of Ukraine left, you're going to have a weaker, potentially rump state Ukraine living next door to an enlarged, greater Russian federation. What incentive is there for the Ukrainians not to join NATO? What is What incentive is there for the Ukrainians not to take in all these more weapons and more equipment to arm themselves better against a potential Russian invasion again? Why would the Ukrainians believe that Russian... Russia wouldn't invade them a second time. And on the part of the Russians, the Ukrainians led you on for eight years with the Minsk agreements, right up until the day that they started massing troops on the border with the Donbass, which flew in the face of peace. And then when you tried to negotiate a peace with them right after you invaded, they said they led you on again. And then they said no. When the British and the Americans came in and promised them all, they promised them the moon. And then they said no to peace. You tried again and they said no to peace. The Ukrainians say no to peace. They don't honor their agreements. They don't honor the treaties that they sign. They don't honor the promises that they make to you. What reason would you have to believe that they're going to honor the peace treaty after this war? Saying that you're not going to have uh, NATO troops in your country, that you're not going to join it. Why would you trust them? after this established pattern of behavior what reason would you have to do that and what incentive would the ukrainians have to do that and not go behind the backs of the russians and violate the treaty to arm themselves again i said it when the war began that based on russia's stated war goals that they would have to take control of ukraine and that based on the established patterns of behavior and the violations of trust that Russia had no incentive to keep any form of Ukraine, an independent Ukraine, around. And here we go with two major figures from Russia, essentially together, not not um, in any singular way, but if you take both of their statements together, that's what I've said. If Ukraine maintains power, then the war will go on forever. Well, that's regime change. You would need regime change if you're going to denazify Ukraine. That means you have to have control over Ukraine. Pushilin, we have to liberate the whole territory of Ukraine. The whole territory. Well, hold on now. That That's total annexation. That's total annexation. That's not we're going to leave a rump state Ukraine. That's not we're going to take half of Ukraine. We're going to, we're, we're, that's not, that's not we're going to leave a piece of Ukraine alive and just take the bits and pieces that we want. That's total annexation talk. 
Why? Because Ukraine is going to continue to pose itself as a threat to Russia. That's literally what I've said. So it's it's a little jarring for me to hear what I've said repeated back to me almost verbatim on separate unconnected occasions or or at least the appearance of unconnected occasions from two different people who are pretty up there in terms of relevance in this conflict. And it hints at a change in the Russian position. Because again, this is the closest anyone on either side of this war has gotten to saying that it's going to end with a total annexation of Ukraine. Again, before, it's, oh, it, we're going to free... The war is going to stalemate and it's going to be this way forever. That, that, that's, that's what people believe right now. Like, again, it's, it's almost laughable that people think the war is going to stay this way, but you can't blame people too much. I mean, we were just talking about the BBC. You know, you, when you look at the sources of information that a lot of other people are working with, like I have to go outside the bounds of the mainstream to get my info, which is how I can be so gloriously ahead of the curve. But you can't blame them too much for bad takes. But before this, and I keep saying but, but before this, it was Russia was going to win the war in a matter of weeks. Then it was, oh, Russia's not as strong as we thought they were. Ukraine's going to win the war. Now it's, okay, let's, let's freeze the conflict. I love that term. Let's freeze the conflict. Uh, and let's n completely ignore the Russian side, mind you. The, People who say that only take into account the Ukrainians. And granted, the Ukrainians aren't willing to freeze the conflict either. I don't, so I don't know where th this idea is going to come from, especially considering that none of the people proposing it, that we freeze the conflict, want to stop giving Ukraine weapons. And if you don't stop giving them weapons, well, they're going to keep fighting the war. They don't want to talk to Russia either, so the, the Russians are going to keep fighting the war. It's interesting watching uh, other analysts at work. But... It, we went from Russia's going to win to Ukraine's going to win to let's freeze the conflict because nobody's going to win. Oh, and by the way, China's going to be the big winner. To now, we're starting to hear rumblings. And again, the, the mainstream is going to be behind the curb on this. But I'm starting to hear a lot more talk of partition. Talk of partition in Ukraine. And... The first talk that I heard of it came out of uh, Douglas McGregor, and he's sort of been pushing the the possibility for a while now in a number of his interviews, and you can look at them uh, sort of uh, towards the latter half of last year and the earlier bits of this year when he said that there's a possibility that the Russians or, or that the Polish move into the Western bits of Ukraine, and we talked about that on this episode, which would mean World War Three. Uh, a real World War Three, but now we have a sort of escalation of that to saying that the Russians uh, and you have you even have the Duran in on this and Jackson Hinkle coming in and saying that there's a possibility that Russia might offer up a partition to the Eastern European countries that they would eventually become borders with in the event that they annex Ukraine. It's like we're going to take all these bits of land that are ethnically Russian and then some beyond that to keep other people away from the ethnically Russian territories of Ukraine. And maybe if you look the other way, we might compensate you. You can have this piece of Western Ukraine. The Hung the Polish can have this piece of Western Ukraine. The Hungarians can have this piece of Western Ukraine. And you just 
hand it over to your new neighbors as a sign of goodwill, essentially buying them off. <laughs> that's a, that's essentially what what's it's being talked about right now. It's being talked about as a potential uh, conclusion to this war, as we as we sort of see that the stalemate phase of the war is coming to a conclusion. Now we're starting to look more at what the possible end routes might be. So we're seeing that that talk has sort of sprung up and it, it started with McGregor. Again, he was the first that I know of who was talking about a potential partition of Ukraine. But now you're starting to see other people in the independent news who are on the Russia's going to win side of the argument sort of picking up the partition talk as well. Now, will it go down that way? Who knows? Who knows? I Although I do have a precondition, a potential precondition as to whether or not this partition might happen. Because uh, if you remember, if you remember, we talked last episode about the similarities between this war and the Crimean War and how the sudden and rapid change in Crimea's demographic makeup, where the, the Crimean Tatars fled in mass to avoid reprisals from the Tsarist government after the war was over, something like that could happen in Ukraine when this stalemate phase ends. Because the war is in the eastern bits of Ukraine. The rest of Ukraine is sort of untouched, aside from the occasional missile bombardment. But if the stalemate ends, becomes a war movement again, and it becomes clear that it's the Russians who are on the move and the Ukrainians are falling back, and the Russians move further and further west, there's a possibility that we'll see a second mass exodus of people out of Ukraine. My guesstimate is that maybe another three to five, potentially eight million. Although I won't necessarily go that high, but five million is the number I'm sitting at. There's my estimate, my guess, that might leave in the face of this Russian steamroller. It could be more. And depending on how much more, you could have a, a depopulation of Ukraine with the primary demographic of the people leaving being those who would otherwise have resisted Russian rule. And if the people who would be most fervent in their resistance to Russian governance are the ones leaving, then that leaves the possibility of resettling the land with ethnic Russians, Russian loyal minorities, and Russified Ukrainians in essentially a Russian homestead act. Then you would bring in Russian business and Russian uh, agriculture to take advantage of the land. Ukraine has very fertile soil. Ukraine has rare earth in its western bits. Ukraine has natural gas on its Black Sea coastline. There's going to be massive business investment in Ukraine if Russia pushes all the way west and if the ukrainians who really don't like russia leave en masse well then that's going to leave a russified ukraine and at that point there's no reason to partition ukraine aside from maybe a, a tiny piece of the western west the far westernmost bits of ukraine we're talking around lviv here here you go, Poland. Here you go, Hungary. You can have that. And maybe even the Russians offer up the, the little bits of Crimea that sort of jut outwards in the south that cut Moldova off from the coastline. Maybe they hand that to Romania. 
maybe they hand it to Moldova. Maybe they partition that piece of land specifically between Moldova and Romania. Give Moldova an access to the Black Sea, direct access. Keep Odessa for Russia and then buy off your neighbors and create a buffer state between you and NATO by giving Moldova a port on the Black Sea. Now they're in your debt. And you have a land bridge to Transnistria. Say, hey, we'll give you this if you recognize Transnistria as a part of Russia. Just saying. And so we're seeing talk of this partition coming along, but I think that the demographics will have to be taken into account. Uh, and I don't expect other people to sort of come to that epiphany that I have, because I was, it's a very specific history, specific epiphany and possibility, which centers on a, a very overlooked war in general. So I, I don't necessarily expect people to go, oh, this thing from the Crimean War might potentially happen in Ukraine. It's a very peculiar take from myself. But I feel that if that happens, if the Ukrainians go the way of the Crimean Tatars, then there's going to be no need for a partition of Ukraine, certainly not large parts of it, or if anything, it'll be very small parts of Ukraine that get partitioned, and the vast majority of the rest will just go to Russia. It'll just go to Russia. But, uh, but the rationale behind the idea that you're going to partition Ukraine, because going back to that talk, uh, the rationale being that you give a, num a piece of land to these Eastern European countries on the grounds that Russia wouldn't have to govern populations that are really hostile towards Russia. Again, we're talking about the far Western bits of Ukraine, the most hostile bits towards Russia. The further Western Ukraine you go, the farther, the more hostile you get to Russia. So why would Russia want to govern over these lands that hate them, give them to the neighbors and buy them off? Now the neighbors have a stake in the post-war order. They have a stake in the new status quo. Because if you give Poland land, you give Hungary some land, you give Romania, Moldova some land, that's your that's all of your neighbors that you've essentially bribed off, aside from Belarus. But shoot, Belarus is going to become a part of Russia. So they get access to the land anyway. They get access to the land anyway. They don't need, the part, they don't need to partake in the partition. Unless you want to formally move the the internal the new internal borders of Russia down by a, a few miles where Belarus gets the bits and pieces of the swamp in the north of Ukraine so the rationale being you give this land to your new neighbors you don't have to govern over populations that are hostile towards Russia the neighbors now have a stake in the new status quo so they will actively resist attempts by, say, the Western parts of Europe and the United States to sort of go back to the old status quo, the old borders, because the old borders would mean losing land. And essentially, Russia carves out a new sphere of influence for itself. Now, that's not saying that everyone's going to do everything that Russia wants, but they're going to be much more open to Russian proposals than they will be to the West. You'll create a rift between Eastern Europe and Western Europe because the East European nations will have a stake in maintaining a partitioned Ukraine because they have a piece of that land. Ru sure, Russia has a lot of it, but hey, we got something, so I guess it's okay. <laughs> we say, hey, we salvaged Ukraine. We saved Ukraine by taking the territory. Now they're safe from, uh, from uh, Russia. Mm-hmm. 
so you could by way of giving up just a little bit of land who happens to inhabit people that are hostile towards you you give it up to the neighbors let them deal with that problem because not the western ukrainians like their neighbors either they like they like the money but they believe the slavs to be under mensch untermensch subhuman they don't like the poles they don't like the hungarians they don't like any of them they don't like the romanians so you give that land to them let the neighbors deal with the headache you take all the good land anyway which is the fertile central bits of ukraine the mineral rich western bits of ukraine and of course you have the black sea coastline and all the natural gas that comes with you give them that little bit of territory you keep the vast majority of it you get rid of the headache and now you have easy governance of this really large new plot of land so that's the rationale and we're starting to hear a little bit more of that and perhaps it'll make its way into the mainstream news as the war progresses at some point later on down the line but i thought it was a very interesting thing to come out of the war this talk of partition now because before it was just douglas mcgregor now it's a few more people and again who knows it's a possibility if you have a mass exodus of ukrainians i don't see necessarily the point of the partition but again i am uh not very qualified to predict the actions of russia i am just a humble observer uh, that's what i am because that's all i can be these guys are very unpredictable so they could do it and it could work out and then you'll have a, a new order in europe one that includes russia and one that sees enlarged east european states who are not very willing to give the land back to ukraine and will go against the united states and will go against western europe who will say we need to liberate ukraine give the land back to ukraine they're going to say no it's our land now so you'll create a divide in nato so they'll be too divided with each other to come at you giving you the time to consolidate your land so it does make sense from a, a cynical you know hard core point of view will it happen we'll just have to wait and see the war has to end first for it to happen i'll be honest with you so we could be waiting quite a while to see whether or not this pans out but it was a very interesting topic that i'm starting to see and perhaps we'll hear more talk of it as the war goes on but in any case that is the proposals of partition but now but now now we're going to talk about the debt ceiling proposal uh the problems with the debt ceiling proposal we talked about the debt ceiling last episode but there was a really big problem or a number of problems that sort of flew over my head so now i want to address those because the deal while it was nice in principle these problems essentially ruin the deal they ruin the deal because the debt ceiling as of now is a date instead of a hard number instead of saying oh we're going to increase the debt ceiling by a hundred billion or a trillion dollars we're going to increase the debt ceiling by some tangible number that you can say okay we've reached the debt limit instead of doing that the debt ceiling is that you can raise the debt as much as you want until january of 2025 that's the debt limit january 2025 
So whatever the debt is by January 2025, that's the new debt ceiling. So essentially, the debt can go up by a virtually unlimited amount for a whole year and a half before even having another discussion about it. Because it's been approved. It's that, that's the deal. You've worked it out already. And once it gets passed, you're going to have a mess on your hands. And of course, the Democrats are going to say yes to this deal. Only a handful of Republicans are objecting to it. They're trying to make a new proposal as we speak. But this is ridiculous. You're going to you're going to give them a blank check for a year and a half to a government that is thirty one trillion dollars in debt. That does not make any sense. That doesn't make any sense at all. You have no limits on spending like we already went over how it, it said that the, the current budget was going to remain the same except for the military. The military was going to be, they didn't say that for the military, it was going to be allowed to expand. And we said as much, but the budget is one thing. Keeping the budget the same is nice, but if you can just raise the debt, if you can just borrow money, the second you reach your limit in terms of your budgetary constraints, then there's no point in having a budget. If you're just going to borrow money, the second you over the second you reach your limit on the budget, you just borrow money, then you don't have a budget. You just have a meaningless number. And that's what we have here. We have incentivized the continuation of our government treating its budget as a meaningless number that, oh, whoops, we went over it. Oh, I guess we'll just borrow $100 billion. That's what we have. Like, for example, and to sort of start to visualize what I'm in here, if you cut spending by one trillion but raise the debt ceiling by two trillion then the deficit can still go up by two trillion dollars because sure as a matter of fact the deficit can go up by three trillion dollars because you've cut spending by one trillion but you've raised the debt limit by two trillion so well actually yeah, it goes up by two trillion. My mistake. But that's if you have a hard number. See, if your debt limit is a date instead of a hard number, you can cut spending by one trillion, and then the government would just borrow the trillion that they don't have, and then raise, and then go another two trillion in debt. Now you have three, three trillion dollars added to the deficit because. You had no upper limits on how high the debt could go before you had accountability, before you stopped raising the debt limit. And by doing this, you negate the purpose of spending cuts. Like if I have, if, if I bring in like $1,000 a week, right? I bring in $1,000 a week. I spend all of it every week. And then I whip out my credit card and spend another thousand dollars every week with the credit card is me cutting a hundred dollars off of my expenditures gonna mean anything if i just pay for those expenditures with the credit card if i if i say i'm not gonna use my debit card right i bring in a thousand dollars it's on my debit card right i go to the gas station it's $100 to fill up on gas. Oh, my God. 
And I say, you know what? I'm not going to spend that money. I'm going to be responsible. And then I turn around and use my credit card to pay for the gas instead of my debit card. Have I really cut my spending? Or have I just added more debt? I've added more debt. That, that, that's what this allows. And if I cut my subscription to Amazon, to Netflix, to Disney Plus, to Hulu, to HBO Max, or what do they call it? Or Max, as they call it now. So goofy. I could cut all my all my uh, subscriptions. Easily, $100 saved. Does that mean anything? If with my credit card, I'm adding something else that costs $100 and I'm using the credit card to pay for it? No. I've, I've done nothing other than make the debt go up faster now. Because now I'm, I'm just borrowing the difference in what I've s- technically saved. I'm spending the same amount of money, but I'm using, uh, I'm using the credit card for a larger portion of my expenditures. The debt goes up faster now. It's, it's, uh, it defeats the purpose of the deal. If you're just going to allow the debt to go up until January of 2025 and it's not like they're going to stop it then we know dang well they're not going to sit down and have an intervention and say okay guys this debt thing is really out of control who, who even knows what number we're going to be at by that point that's a year and a half we we could easily at the rate we're going we could easily be at four trillion oh, i said four trillion oh my goodness that'd be a miracle we, we could easily be at 4d trillion dollars by january of 2025 we could easily be at forty trillion, maybe even above that. What are we gonna do? We're just gonna sit here looking goofy for the next year and a half. Like, what is this? You negate the purpose of spending cuts if you can just borrow the difference. Like, because if you're gonna print the money, because it's not just that you're borrowing the money, right? It's that you're borrowing it from the central bank. For us, that's the Federal Reserve. So that means you're not just borrowing the difference. You cut a trillion, but you raise the debt ceiling from two trillion to three trillion. So you can spend the exact same amount of money that you were going to spend, but you can say that you've cut your budget. It's not just that you're borrowing the money, you're borrowing it from a central bank, the Federal Reserve, which means that that money gets printed, which devalues the dollar. That's inflation. That's what inflation is. The expansion of the money supply that drives the cost of everything else up because when you have a large supply of something the value of it goes down if the demand doesn't change the demand for dollars isn't going up if anything the demand for dollars is actually declining around the world hell the demand for dollars is declining in the united states because people are diversifying people are afraid that the dollar is losing value too fast so now that people are buying gold and silver people are looking at bitcoin people are looking at stocks and how to get in on the insider trading people are looking at foreign exchange people are looking at ways of protecting their wealth because of the inflation so demand for dollar is down everywhere but you're expanding the supply of them that's a recipe for inflation the expansion of the money supply beyond its demand. Meaning we'll be printing even more money as the expenditure 
stays exactly the same as it was last year. Because you're just you're just going to borrow more money. Oh, whoops. We we went over budget by $100 billion. We're going to borrow. It. Oh, we went over by another 100. We're going to borrow. It. Oh, oh, we did it again. Oh, we did it again. Uh, and then it's January 2025. And it's like we're just going to be look, sitting here looking goofy with a $50 trillion tab. And it's like, okay, guys, this, this debt thing is really out of control. We really have to get this under control. I, I can stop whenever I want. I can stop when <laughs> that, that's what we sound like right now. That's what we look like. Uh, a, a drug addict, except the drug is debt. We're addic- addicted. And we keep saying that we're going to do something about it. We keep saying and promising to do something about it. And then it just keeps getting better because there's no systemic, shall I say, change or no systemic mechanism. There's no mechanism in the laws that we pass in these bills and these appropriations to force that to happen. There's no leverage that is being applied to force that outcome. And so that outcome doesn't happen. Like the U.S., and to give you a a, a more slightly more in-depth picture here, the U.S. had just about a $4.9 trillion revenue in 2022 but a total expenditure of 6.3 trillion dollars meaning the deficit was just under 1.4 trillion dollars if we were to cut revenue by 1 trillion dollars and i'm I'm just saying that the revenue is spent because it obviously is if we're the debt keeps going up if we have a, a, a deficit so you spend all of your revenue but if we cut the revenue by $1 trillion, so now it's 3.9 instead of 4.9 trillion, you cut the revenue by 1 trillion and keep your expenses at the same level. Cause it's not like they're gonna actually stop spending money on things. They're, they're, gonna, they're gonna keep paying for all the things. They're just gonna lower the number of money that they're actually bringing in. Cause they, they've kept the budget the same, your revenue kept the budget the same, but the expenditures are continuously allowed to grow in size. Meaning, sure, you cut your spending by a trillion dollars, but if your expenses stay the same, uh, 6.3 trillion, well, now you have a deficit of 2.4 trillion instead of the 1.4 trillion that you had before. This deal, while it was nice in principle and it had some very, very promising things in it, and, uh, the, the MAGA Republicans, they, they will have to redeem. You see, this is why you view your politicians with a great grain of salt and actually look, actually look. But this deal, while it was nice in principle, the idea that we were going to get a little, just the slightest hint of some accountability for all this spending, it was very nice. But that the one provision has ruined the entire deal and made it worthless. Because it's nice that you have these spending cuts. It's nice that you have these budget cuts. But what is the point of that if you can just expand the debt infinitely? Because there's no limit. They could expand the money supply by $4 trillion tomorrow if they wanted to. And then they'd still have a year and a half to expand the money supply. And hyperinflate our currency. They have a whole year and a half under this deal if it gets passed. It hasn't been passed just yet, or at least uh, it's it's where it's getting there. 
I imagine it'll pass soon, because I don't see what the resistance is going to be to it. But what's the incentive to actually make these things meaningful if you can just borrow the difference? And this is the problem with modern monetary theory. This is the problem with central banks in general, where you have a, a central institution printing all this money. Well, now you have people who don't know what they're doing. And even if they didn't know what they're doing, they don't need that much power. Nobody needs that kind of power. I mean, I'm a small government guy. That's not limited to the, the central bank. I'm of the opinion that we don't need a central bank, to be honest with you. We don't, need, we don't need that. You can have a number of regional banks. And hell, you can let them all print the currency. They can all print dollars. And then you'll have a market. <laughs> you'll have a market for dollars. When there's a demand for dollars, everyone's going to be in to try to pump up the supply. And if there's not, well, you're going to be, there's the dollar supply is going to stay there until the supply catches up. At the very least, then you, you'll have a fluctuation, but you'll have a relatively stable market price for the dollar. Now you could do that, or you could have the U.S. Treasury come in. They could issue the currency, but the currency is backed by gold. That's something else I support. As a matter of fact, I, I would support that more because I want the gold. I want our currency backed by something solid. But what we have today is fiat currency, where the, it's backed up by confidence. It's backed up by confidence. And that is just such a silly thing to say. You're, you're going to back the currency up by confidence. Okay. Okay, buddy. <laughs> it. That's... That's the problem with our current economic system, our current monetary system specifically. It incentivizes bad behaviors by our government and by our institutions, bad spending behaviors, because the, the bad spending can be accounted for by more bad spending. You can just take out a bigger and bigger loan. There's no upper limit on how much money they can take out. We need. There's no check and balance. The system of check and balance is broken by the central banks. We have no upper limit on how much debt we can have. We only we don't have upper limits on how much taxes you can levy. I think we need some upper limits on these things. But for the time being, it looks like we're not going to get those. We're not going to get those for the time being. For the time being. Although we might see we might see cuz the Republicans again, they, these MAGA Republicans, they do have promise, all right? I won't, I won't completely withdraw my support for them, but they do have some promise. Again, they, they were the ones talking about balanced budgets, namely Rand Paul. They, they did force McCarthy to do something useful. So I got to give them the credit where credit's due. And they are the ones who introduced a re-pegging of the dollar to gold, the gold standard uh, restoration act. A lovely act that I would love, I would absolutely love to see come to fruition. And you have major political commentators talking about the abolition of the Fed and the Fed and interest rates and inflation uh, from other people. Everyone's eyes are on the Fed and the interest rate and on the inflation. With all this going on and a number of the correct solutions being put out there, we might see on the other side of this a removal of the Federal Reserve altogether. Because as inflation hits people, they're going to look for the problem. And eventually, they're going to get past the Putin inflation, Putin's price hikes thing. That can only last for so long 
until people start to point the finger at their own government, specifically the Federal Reserve, printing money. And that actually might just be a, a side effect of allowing these people a blank check until conveniently after the 2024 election cycle concludes and the new Congress and the new president comes in. And I say new president because I don't think it's going to be Biden. Oh, get this guy up out of here. So perhaps this is a, a political move. That's another possibility. But for the time being, we're all going to pay the price for that political move. And if it, if, if, if they hold through to the night, hold through the night, and they and these MAGA Republicans come out on the other side, talking about fiscal responsibility, they might just win the day. They might, they might. America is on track. America is in is on track towards public sentiment being very much in favor of these things. In fact, there were a couple polls that come out, but I don't really like to talk, I don't really like to talk about polls too much on the podcast because. Ultimately, polls are unreliable. The results of elections uh, these days are questionable. But I I have to go with the results of an election more than I can with a poll. So, But on the other side of all this, we might see the removal of the Federal Reserve. Now imagine that. Um, in America with sound money, that would mean much higher buying power for Americans and American business which itself is a wombo combo that would facilitate the rebirth of America and a massive growth, mind you, of U.S. industrial and manufacturing capacity. We could import the raw materials we needed for our industries and a strong dollar that could purchase more abroad as well as at home would mean that it would be cheaper for them to do so and it would mean that Americans would be able to buy the finished goods produced by American businesses and industries, making America itself a massive and thriving market for American goods and even a lot of goods pr produced from around the world. We'd be a massive, massive market, perhaps an even bigger one than we are now, just by way of expanding our buying power with a strong dollar. These are potentially positive developments that I see could come as a backlash as a response to the debt crisis that we're about to have uh, and the hyper it, will it be hyperinflation or will it just be really, really bad inflation? I think it'll be really, really bad inflation. Well, I'll, we'll have to wait to make that determination because hyperinflation is you have a trillion dollars to buy a loaf of bread, but really bad inflation. We're on track for that, but I think the response to these problems that are going to come our way is actual fiscal responsibility, sound money. That's going to be very beautiful. It's going to have some very good uh, effects on this country. Granted, we're probably going to have to wait until after the second Great Depression hits to get there, but then we'll be looking at a positive feedback loop for the economy, which will accelerate our economic recovery. So it is possible that something good might come out of all this drama that we see today. It is possible. Ah, and last but not least, we have... The thing that I was talking about for these past few weeks, I finally put it into podcast format, which is my view of the world order returning to the way it once was. And um, to cut to the chase here, I'm talking about the pre-Columbus era of geopolitics, where you had the East, the wealthy, the prosperous East, 
producing all these riches, these spices, these metals, and these necklaces, all these, these riches from the East that would make their way over from China, from India, from Indonesia, from Japan, make their way gradually westwards towards the Middle East, who could get them, who could get these items on the cheap because they lived in proximity to one another. And then as they trickled their way towards the West, you had the Middle East, the Muslims imposing these massive, these massive tariffs, these, these uh, markups, I should say, not tariffs, these markups on the goods as they made their way towards the Europeans. And the Europeans just got the short end of the stick. Combine that with religious and ethnic tensions between the Arabs, the Muslim Arabs, and the Christian Europeans. Uh, Europeans, not necessarily in ethnicity, but there's a lot of ethnicities in Europe. You have a recipe for conflict that sort of played itself out for hundreds of years. A, a, very, a very, very long time in Europe with Europe on the back foot for a good deal of that time. I mean, the Ottomans were constantly pushing in to Europe before they made their expansions into the Middle East. They were eating away at the, what remained of the Byzantine Empire. And you had the, the Caliphate of Cordoba, I believe. Actually, let me look it up. I believe I'm correct, but there was a Muslim invasion of Spain. Well, the Iberian Peninsula, but Spain is the biggest. So, and there was a caliphate there. It, it wasn't supposed to be a caliphate. It sort of declared itself independent of the other caliphate. And so there was a sort of tension there. But as far as everyone else was concerned, all the Europeans were concerned, uh, this is a problem. Because they were being pressed on all sides by the Muslims, and then you had a, a number of pirates, Muslim pirates, operating in the Mediterranean. Now, it wasn't just Muslim pirates, to be fair, but they, they were the most prominent during this period of time. And there was a real sense that the Europeans might actually be wiped out by the, uh, the onslaught of the Muslims. And this is after having to deal with the occasional horde coming out of what is modern-day Russia every now and then, it was a lot to deal with. It was a whole lot to deal with. And the Europeans, the West at that time, because they didn't know about the Americas, the West was on, I don't know how else to say, but to get, they had the shortest end of the shortest stick. And they could only fantasize about the riches of the East. And they desired the riches of the East. They desired to be able to have the riches of the East, the East being China, India, Indonesia, Japan, and the various uh, islands and city-states that prospered during that period of time, not without their problems, not without their own conflicts, but general prosperity. They were on the upswing in history. And the Middle East was able to ride that upswing to have their own moment to shine as well. But then the West being pushed to the extreme after the, uh, uh, they, they began to push back. They began to push back. You get the Spanish Inquisition, one of the biggest events there. And later on, you have the second siege of Vienna being broken by a coalition force, namely of the 
mainly with the the Polish with their cavalry charge, one of the biggest in history, and that sort of reversed the trend of the Europeans constantly being put on the back foot by the Arabs and the Muslims. And you even had the rise of the Tsardom of Russia, push, pushing them in the Caucasus and in the Black Sea and in eventually Central Asia as well. You had a, a sort of massive pushback from the West, courtesy of Spain, courtesy of Poland and eventually the Austrians who began to expand in the Balkans, courtesy of the Russians as well. These are the, the big three biggest pieces of that sort of pushback. And then, of course, you have Spain discovering the New World and the Portuguese circumnavigating and going around Africa to tap the markets of the East directly. And it was so expensive by the time it made its way to Europe by land, those, those goods, that even the really, really expensive voyage around Africa towards these ports in the East, even that really expensive trip cut prices down by half or more in Europe when you brought the spices and the, and the, the riches back. But given a number of demographic trends that we see today, and a number of economic trends as well, it looks like we're going back to that period of time in, in a sort of a, a, a history rhyming kind of way. It's not going to be exactly the same. Heck, it might not even come to pass, but given what we're witnessing, I think something similar to that might arise. The world order returning to the way it was pre-Columbus, pre-Spanish Inquisition, certainly. And that is due to, again, demographic and economic numbers. And I'll just sort of dive into this with populations of the Middle East. They've been on the rise for quite some time. And I have on a few occasions listed off the numbers of some of these countries, and they have shocked me. Uh, I, Who would have guessed that 85 and 89 million people would be living in Turkey and Iran, respectively? For reference, there are about 81 million Germans living in Germany. 81. That's the biggest country in Europe, aside from Russia, who has 145 million soon to be expanded, but I'll get into them in a minute. So 80 million. A single country in Europe has 80 million people. Yet you have Turkey with 85, Iran with 89. You have Egypt with 100 million people, 109 million to be exact. And then you have an honorable mention being Ethiopia with another 120 million people. What's the population of Sudan? Let's let's grab them as well while we're at it. Population. 45 million living in Sudan. Actually, that's, yeah, that's 2021. So that, that's Ukraine, essentially. An entire Ukraine living in Sudan. Except there's slightly more people living in Sudan than in Ukraine. So with just a handful of the major Middle Eastern states you see a massive difference in the populations. You see all of them on par, if not far surpassing the population of Europe's second most populous country. The, obviously the number one being Russia. But if we're talking averages, if we're talking generalities, 
the Middle East has Europe down packed in terms of population, especially once you consider the drop off you get once you go past Germany, because there's already nearly a, a there's already a 60 million something drop off from Russia to Germany. And then there's a, a 20 million drop off once you get to France and Britain. Once you get to France and Britain. They, I mean, honestly, it's really big. And these numbers do surprise me. And on occasion, I'll say, oh, if this coalition of countries got together, it'll be bad news for Israel. And I'll try to I'll apply it in a specific context when I'm speculating. But now that I'm speculating on the broader geopolitical consequences of this rise, and I'm not saying that it's a bad thing. Of course, if you're if you're in the Middle East, it's about damn time. You, you have your turn after being bombed and subjugated for a few hundred years. It's about damn time. So it's going to be good for them and not so good for other people. But uh, for me, uh, I live over here, so it really doesn't matter to me. <laughs> but now that we take these numbers and look at the broader geopolitical context of them, again, there, there are a number of other factors beneath the surface that could change this outcome and make it so that it's not necessarily the way things actually end up being. You can look at where the food is grown, uh, where things are produced, technology, etc. But when we look at population, when you look at the rising economies and the integration of the Middle Eastern world to China's Belt and Road and the, the creation of a, a new world, the multipolar world, and a lot of countries hitching their wagon to it, and you combine that with the decline of the West, you see, at the very least, a relative rise in the power of the Middle East. So if you pair that, you, you, we're looking at the Asian century where China, India, and a number of other countries are going to have a, the best of times. They're, they're getting wealthy. They're manufacturing things. They're producing. They're, they're getting wealthy. They have their own demographic issues, so it might not be exactly the same again it's a history rhyming type of thing rather than an exact replica. But with the Middle East, you have rising economies and rising populations at a time when the East is doing as good as it's been doing for quite some time and the West starting to fall off. You have a recipe for a return to the pre-inquisition status quo. Like there's 35 million people in Saudi Arabia and 43 million people in Iraq, 43 million people in Iraq. France had 45 million people at the beginning of World War One. And today they have around 68 million. Now, although a significant portion of that are non-ethnic French people, but yeah, it's, it's a really big growth in the population in the Middle East because you're talking France goes from 45 million to 68 million, which is largely supplemented, well, not largely, but a good contingent of that is supplemented with immigration. And then you see Iraq, who went from three, oh, not, not, they went from 3 million in 1914. France was at 45 million. Iraq was at 3 million in 1914. And now they went from 3 million to 43 million. They've added 40 million people. France has added 23 million. And 3.7 million of those 
are verified migrants since the migration crisis hit from the Syrian civil war. So you're looking at a French population of around 65 million. Assuming that we only go with those numbers and there's people that come by boat and they don't necessarily get uh, registered or counted, but 65 million French is still a, a solid number. And France is technically one of the only countries in Europe that still has a, a positive demography where their, their population isn't inverted, where you have so few births that you're going to end up with more uh, retirees than young people. So that will give France a better position relative to the other Europeans. And the Swedes are in a, a similar position. But the rest of Europe has inverted population pyramids. The rest of Europe is going to be experiencing population declines in the coming years and decades. The Middle East is still rising. The Middle East has already caught up and surpassed Europe in population. Well, a, a good number of their, their major states have, I'll say that much, the Middle East is, does have a number of smaller states. The Europeans do have a lot of people spread out a lot across a lot of different countries. I mean, Poland has like 30 something million. Spain has 30 something million. So while the populations are much more spread out in Europe, they're falling. And then you have the Middle East that have these super states that have these massive populations and their populations are still rising. It's, it's a lot. Spain has 47 million. Italy has 60 million. But if their populations are falling while the populations of the Middle East are rising, well, that means that you don't just have a rise in the relative strength of the Middle East compared to Europe, compared to the West, but you have a rise in the absolute strength of the Middle East compared to the West. Now, again, you do have similar population uh, collapses going on are about to go on in the East. So how that will affect this dynamic is going to be uh, interesting to see. But this is a dynamic that I haven't seen quite a haven't seen quite fleshed out in any major discussion. And heck, it, uh, I, I, I've overlooked it myself for quite a while even though I've looked at the numbers on multiple occasions. But if the populations of the Middle East are rising and the, the economies of the Middle East are rising and the West is stagnating and declining, there, we're about to see massive population declines as the boomer generation retires. And then eventually they move on and they will pass away. People don't live forever. If the majority of your population is, is in the oldest demographic and they start to pass away just due to old age and due to medical complications and whatnot, what have you, your population is going to fall a lot faster than you can replace it, especially if people aren't having kids like they used to. We're going to see a pre-Spanish Inquisition era of geopolitics sort of return to the fray. Like, you're going to have this massive wealth of the East rebuilt through China's industrialization and through the gradual Indian industrialization as well. Japan is already a high-tech economy. They're going to be going through population stagnation and a much more slow motion decline, mind you. 
So the possibility for Japan to recover is actually greater for uh, than a lot of other countries. And they start, they're starting with 100 million people. Now, a lot of them, a lot of them are much older. And people do have really, really long lifespans in Japan. But Japan has a sort of population pillar rather than an inverted pyramid. They still have the potential for a comeback. Whereas you look at, say, Thailand or Korea or China, and it's an upside down pyramid. You're going to see massive population declines, but you don't see those inverted pyramids in the Middle East. Which suggests, although you do have still falling birth rates and fertility rates, they still have lots of room to grow before they even hit stagnation. And if everyone around them is going to be shrinking, with the exception potentially of India, although they too have falling birth rates, it's a global phenomenon, these falling birth rates. A number of countries are doing something about it. But if everyone else is declining while the Middle East is still rising, that's going to mean a massive increase in the relative power of the Middle East. And eventually you're going to have financial interests relocating to where the growing markets are. It's going to be the Middle East. It's going to be Africa. And Africa, while it's going to be nice for them, it's going to be better for the Middle East. The Middle East is going to have one hell of a century. And especially when you compare that with these peace deals going on throughout the region, the instability of the Middle East is being dealt with. So you're going to have stability in a region that has been synonymous with instability for a few dec for decades now. Now, granted, we were the ones who caused that instability, but you have stability in the Middle East, rising populations in the Middle East, and they're linking up with the Belt and Road for industry and infrastructure to accelerate the process of economic growth and economic integration with one another. You're going to get a massive amount of wealth being generated from this region. Stability combined with infrastructure and business and security, because eventually the United States is going to be forced out by the Great Depression. And you have, you have security, which will also be provided in part by the Russians. The Middle East is going to be on the rise. They're going to be on an incredible rise. And after the decades of warfare that have been waged by us in their lands, they're not going to be fighting each other for a, at least a few decades. So you're going to have a period of population growth combined with a period where everyone is on the same page in favor of peace. It's going to be a massive growth for the Middle East. It's going to be a massive growth in the influence of Islam. And that's going to have impacts and ramifications on the, the wider world especially in Europe where they've imported large numbers of people of this background who are Muslims, who are from this region, who still hold greater affinity with that region than they do with their new host countries. That's going to be, we might see a lot of problems in Europe stem from that. That's not to say that these people are necessarily bad. It's just to say that it, they're them being in Europe at a time of European population collapse is not exactly going to be a best a good combination for them. We pretend that history is this nice thing. It's not. It's really not. And I don't. I don't underestimate the possibility 
that a lot of tragedies will come from the response, the backlash politically to decline. Countries really don't handle decline very well. If you can look no further than the United States, countries don't handle decline very well. And no country in the West is even contemplating or trying to curb their declines. Like Britain had an opportunity with Brexit to go renegotiating deals and getting deals with every country around the world. They could have been Singapore and the Thames. That's what they should have done. They've instead squandered their time trying to get a deal with the, the entity that they just seceded from. Instead of building trade relations with the rest of the world. So now they will share the fate of Europe, living in poverty, in, in increasing poverty, mind you, as the wealth dwindles and the population dwindles, and you're importing more and more people, and the very ethnicity, the identity of the nation states of Europe will be called into question as their populations are fading and they're importing people from foreign lands. There will be a political backlash to this, and some of these countries are going to get brutal. There is going to be violent reactions to what is happening right now in Europe. Europe is going to go back to being the Europe we know. Well, not the Europe that we know. We grew up with Europe that is peaceful. I mean the Europe that the history books know. That's the Europe that we're going to see in response to decline. So it's not just the story of the rise of the Middle East. It's going to be the story of the decline of the West. Now, when I say the decline of the West, back down to the bottom of the totem pole, which is where they were at uh, in the pre-Spanish Inquisition era, and heck, even for a period of time after the Spanish Inquisition, they, 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 were, they, they were having a, a, a moment to shine. But it wasn't until the discovery of the New World that you get these the Europeans expanding into superpowers of their day. But with, in the pre-Columbian world, that we're, that we're moving into. The Europeans are, gonna, are not going to respond to that very well. And you're going to have a struggle by many Europeans over the existence of their ethnicity. And in that environment, tolerance does not win. It's intolerance, particularly intolerance of races. I think that that is something we're going to see in Europe. But when I talk about the decline of the West, it's important to note of number of exceptions france again has still a a healthy demographic a healthy demography their population is still growing sweden still has a healthy demography i think britain might although recent numbers i've been listening to the podcast lotus eaters and they were talking about it i think that their good demography period has sort of passed and they're either in the stagnation period or they're now in decline. Uh, so they're going to be dealing with that. Ireland has some time to figure that thing out. But you're going to have France bucking the trend, potentially, depending on how many of the, how much of the fertility rate is coming from their immigrant population versus ethnic French. We don't really know. You have the Swedes who are bucking the trend. But then you have the big boys. You have... Russia and America. Uh, and Hungary is trying to buck the trend as well, although they still have a long ways to go before their their populations can grow in a healthy rate again. But the big boys to look out for, the big exceptions are gonna be the United States and Russia. When we talk about the decline of the West, when you hear others talk about the decline of the West, 
think you have to take into account these exceptions because the United States has a much better demography than the rest of Europe and by itself has 300 and something million people. So without the West, the United States is still a great power. The United States is still a massive economy. The United States still has a massive army. We don't need it. We have it. <laughs> the United States is still an innovator. The United States still has lots of business. The United States still has lots of young people. And even though our latest generation is still smaller than ever, the drop off between say the size of the generation Z and the size of the millennials is not nearly as big as the drop off you see between the generations in other countries. It were still a sort of chimney, if you will. The United States by itself is a great power. Any European nation by themselves is at best a regional power. And they're in decline already. So you will see greater attempts at European solidarity. And these attempts in an era where the Europeans are fighting for their sovereignty and their existence as ethnicities, that solidarity might just be broken in favor of, well, I have to look out for my own people. So when we talk about decline, you have to exclude the United States. But I also say, even though Russia's demography is pretty bad, they, they, they have massive population decline built into their uh, future as well. Or do they? You see, Russia is perhaps the only country in Europe actively resisting decline. And I would even go as far as to say that they are resisting that decline successfully. You have the annexation of Crimea, that's 2 million people. You have the current, you have the Union State with Belarus, which was actually put forth by Belarus and has since been taken advantage of by Russia under Putin. And now Belarus being left with no options after the attempted coup against him in 2020, he, he has to throw all his cards in with Russia, especially now with the war in Ukraine and the West hardening against anybody who isn't on board with Ukraine, Belarus in particular. He has, a, he has Belarus has no choice. Lukashenko has no choice but to throw his lot in with Russia. So when the Union state is completed and Belarus is formally integrated into Russia, that's 10 million people. You, if Russia completes its annex, depending on how far Russia goes in Ukraine. If they stop the war now, they're already looking at an additional 5 million people. Well, actually 8 million, because there were 3 million Ukrainian refugees that went to Russia. And then between the territories of Crimea, Kherson, Zaporizhia, Luhansk, and Donetsk, that's 5 million people. So 5 million plus the 3 million refugees to Russia, that's 8 million. The Russians have already bolstered their population by 8 million people. So the 145 million that they had, well, bump that up by eight. So now they're at 153. They are the only population, they're in the only country in Europe whose population is going to be going up during this period. And depending on how far into Ukraine they go, they could add another 7 million people to their ranks. If they go for the total annexation of Ukraine, we could be looking at potentially half of Ukraine's pre-war population being added to Russia. Uh, again, uh, I think a lot of people are going to flee. 
there's the possibility that they do the partition thing that we talked about earlier on the episode, uh, earlier on in the episode, excuse me. But we're looking at Russia integrating another 50 to 20 million people from Ukraine, maybe even 30, depending on how far west they go and depending on how many people stay. Because a lot of people that left aren't going to come back, so it's really about those that stay. We'd be looking at a Russian population expanded just off the war in Ukraine by 15 to 20 or 30 million people. And the 15 million alone would put Russia, without Belarus, it would put Russia at 160 million people. You add Belarus to that, that's 170 million. So any decline that you see beyond that point is going to be taken off the top of Russia's gains rather than from what Russia started with. If Russia goes up to 170 or even 180 million people through the creation of the Greater Russian Federation, and then they lose half that population through demographic decline, well, guess what? You lo- you started with 145 million, you went up to 170, and now you're down to only, you're down to only what was that uh a hundred just about a hundred million you're down to only 85 million oh wow you're at germany's pre-declined population level and then what of germany they start off with 81 not even 82 million people if they lose half that they're below france in 1914 they're at 42 they're at 41 million people they're at 40 million people well we don't know how far this is going to go We just know that we're going to see some massive drop-offs in European populations. And if the Russians are expanding their numbers right now, and then they go through the decline, well, they're going to be starting from a much higher point, which means that in relative terms, they're going to be doing a lot better. Plus, Russia has direct access to the Middle East and the East. They've built up alliances in the Caucasus. They've built up alliances in Central Asia. They built up a strategic partnership with China. They have the BRICS with China, India, Brazil, and South Africa. They're a member of OPEC+. They're a massive energy exporter, both oil, natural gas. They're a massive commodities exporter. You're talking minerals, iron, iron, coal, You're talking nickel, uh, lots of minerals and metals that they produce. They produce a lot of lumber. They produce a lot of physical goods that other countries need. And then on top of that, they're a major agricultural power. And with the annexation of lands in Ukraine, they're going to be an even bigger agricultural power. With the annexation of Ukraine, they're going to have access to more natural gas resources in the Black Sea. With the annexation of Ukraine, they're going to have access to, again, depending on how far west they go, they're going to have access to the rare earth deposits of western Ukraine, which will make them a major player in the chip industry and will allow them the creation of their own domestic chip industry. But at the very least, the access to the rare earth will make them a major player in high-tech industry as a whole. Because it's not just chips that need the rare earth. It's high tech. So Russia 
is poised through geographic expansion, through the population expansion that will come through that physical expansion of the Russian border, from the th- from the resources and the minerals and the materials that they export to the resources and a- agricultural lands that they will gain through the annexation of large parts of Ukraine and the alliances that they've built and the partnerships and the, the organizations that they're working with, Russia has set themselves up to being a very great power, perhaps not a superpower, but a great power and a very, very, a highly influential great power at that. They have set themselves up for success even in the event, in the event of democratic decline. They are the only Western country actively resisting decline. Aside from aside from the United States, obviously. Now, granted, U.S. decline is also going to be a matter of overseas commitments. Our decline is going to be measured in how many overseas de- commitments that we fall back on. But no one's pressing the American border, aside from the illegal immigrants. And we already have a guy running for office who's going to deport them. <laughs> who's going to deport them. So that's going to get dealt with. And then that same guy is talking about a baby boom in the United States. Who else is talking about boosting the population of their domestic peoples? Hungary, Viktor Orban is talking about it. Oh, and Russia. Russia is talking about boosting their populations and is actively trying to do that. So Russia and the United States are going to be the only Western countries actively, and I believe successfully, resisting decline. And if anything, they will see even better positions in the world stage. They will be the exceptions that prove the rule of the decline of the West. Because, And I have to make these exceptions, because when we talk about the West, people generally exclude Russia and include the United States. But in the world that we're looking at, when we talk about Western decline, when we talk about the fall of the West and the inevitable books that will be written on the fall of Western civilization, we're not going to be talking about the United States. We're not going to be talking about Russia. They're, they're going to be, there's going to be a chapter on Russia, sure, when they, these books get published, and they will be very interesting pieces of literature to read when, in about 20, 40 years when the demographic decline really does hit and we're starting to see little snippets of it. We're starting to see hints of it as we enter into the 2020s and as the boomers start to retire and as the falling birth rate starts to catch up with us. But Russia's going to be a major player. They're going to be a major power for decades. And if they are successful in getting their birth rates up, then their recovery is going to start earlier for Russia than it will for other countries. And then they have, on top of that, they have more room to fall because of the the actions that they're taking now. Again, I expect at least 15 million people added to Russia's population by the end of the war in Ukraine. And then another 10 million from Belarus, putting Russia, contemporary Russia, at roughly where it was at the beginning of World War One. They actually had a larger population back then than they do now. Their, ter- their territory was bigger back then. But that's a major gain. They're the only ones who will see major gains like that. No one else in the West, aside from maybe the United States through domestic birth rate increases, because uh, we're already sort of at stagnation right now, 
And so now we're watching as the conservatives, the people who have kids in the United States, sort of slowly overtake the liberals. So that's already happening in the United States. We're already on track for population growth in the not too distant future. Just due to our own demographic trends being ahead of the Europeans in that regard. And because there's a lot more people here. So the, the turnover can happen a lot faster. Both Russia. They're the only ones who are going to see double-digit increases, and we're talking in millions. They're the only other Western country who's going to see double-digit increases by the millions of their population. Everyone else is going to see double-digit declines in the millions in terms of their population. Unless you don't even have double digits to begin with. I mean, if you have 10 million people, you you can't lose double digits. You, you wouldn't exist. <laughs> we're going to see massive fall a massive fall off in the western population and that by itself might destroy this idea of western solidarity because then it's every man for themselves there's again there's going to be attempt perhaps in that environment the eu will thrive and will be successful in convincing other european nations to band together and form a united states of europe but even with the United States of Europe, if all of Europe is in decline, well, good luck doing anything useful on the world stage. But that's the nature of the West. Russia can be a great power on its own. The United States can be a great power on its own. But it takes all the Europe combined to be a great power. Especially if you're talking on the level of the United States, China and Russia. Or India. India is rising. Brazil is rising. The Middle East is rising. And we might end up in a situation where the rising populations of the Middle East force people who will feel overcrowded to start moving into other areas of the world. And if at that moment in time, Europe is depopulated and has large contingents of ethnic Arabs or other ethnicities within the Middle East, who are Muslims and who are welcoming towards more people from that region that they came from moving in, you're going to have a de facto colonization of Europe. It'll be different from the olden days where you just have a nomadic people just walk in and then they'd start beating you with a club if you tried to do anything about it. So it's a different type of migration that you're dealing with, but you could see the erasure of entire societies and of entire ethnicities like we take for granted today that the ethnicities we are familiar with are going to be there tomorrow but when you look back on history it's often a study of peoples and cultures and ethnicities entire genealogy that do not exist today certainly not in any meaningful number i mean who remembers, uh, again, who remembers the Crimean Tatars? Who remembers, uh, who were they? Who remembers the Gauls? The Goths, that's who they were. Who, who remembers the Goths? I don't remember them. Who remembers the Etruscans? Who remembers any of the minor peoples in history, the footnotes in history? We don't remember them. There were a great many 
peoples in Central Asia that just get wiped out from time to time every time a horde comes along and eviscerates everything that they have. Who remembers those people? No one. <clears throat> what happened to the Minoans? No one knows. What happened to the Seljuks? The people, the, the Turks that were in there before Turkey. Who, what happened to the Seljuks? They're gone. Oops. Where did these people go? There are ethnicities, whole ethnicities, that are missing from the gene pool right now. And we don't even think about it, but we take for granted the idea that the ethnicities we see today are still going to be there tomorrow. But with demographic declines like this, and I don't think the declines themselves are going to be the extinction event. I think what happens after. Because you, you, you can have decline, but if you have decline and then you suffer some, some catastrophe that wipes you down to like a million people left, well, congratulations, you're conquerable now. You don't have a country now. You, you, are, you exist on paper. And especially if you're dealing with large numbers of foreign populations living in your country. Again, I think the European reaction to the current open borders uh, status quo is going to be very violent because it will have to be in order for them to continue to exist as ethnicities. And some people might not make it. I'm looking at the Balkans. The Balkans, Balkan nations that already aren't starting off with large populations, these demographic declines might be fatal for them. The Balkans, the Baltics even, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, if their populations are falling and then they have an enlarged Russia living next to them, who's to say that they don't just, Russians don't just move into the territory and that their reprisals against Russia to try to preserve their own control over their own land. I'm talking on the part of Lithuanians, Latvians, Estonians, to keep themselves as the majority population in their own countries as the population falls and falls and falls. And the, if they get aggressive towards the Russian populace in an era where Russia is going to be much, much more sensitive towards the existence of its own population, even the diaspora outside of Russia, you could end up with a war where these countries get annexed and then that's it. Now the Russian populace can move in and eat up your land. Russia is the only country aside from the United States that's going to see growth, that's going to see its position improve, or at a bare minimum, again, like the United States, stagnate from a very high position. Russia's already very high up there on the totem pole of great powers, as is the United States. Even when you contend with challengers like India, Indonesia, Nigeria, and the Middle East, Turkey, Iran, Egypt, Arabia. These are major players, but guess who's still going to be on the major players list? It's going to be United States and Russia. The rest of the West can't say that. Canada can't say that. Their population is going down. Australia and New Zealand, they can't say that. Their population is going down. Now, Australia and New Zealand have the benefit of being islands with strict immigration policies. So they're in much less of a danger of being overwhelmed by some foreigner moving in than the Europeans. Granted, being an island hasn't stopped the British from a self-inflicted wound. But at the very but again, 
again, Australia and New Zealand aren't just islands. They're really far out of everyone else's way. Now, if they start opening up the border to Indonesia, they might have a, that might be a, a different story. If they start opening up the border to Chinese migration, that, that'll be a different story. If they open up the border to India, that's a different story. They're living next door to really, really, really populous countries. So their existence in a, in a world where their population has declined significantly, they could sabotage themselves with an open borders policy. I'll just say that much. But out of all the Western world, out of the West, that being Europe, the Anglosphere, the United States, Russia and the United States are going to be the only ones not included when we talk about the decline of the West. So in this pre, pre-Inquisition era that we're looking at coming into being, where the Middle East is potentially even on top rather than just in the middle with the east on top and then the middle east is in the middle the middle east in the middle and then the europeans are at the bottom of the totem pole the europe the middle east might actually end up being on top with the population declines in the east to when you factor those in and the rising population of the middle east the rising influence of islam there will be holy wars and those wars if they're waged against the europeans will be wars of survival for the europeans will they survive we don't know we don't know, but we're looking at a, uh, this catastrophic fall off of the human population, courtesy of people not having kids for an extended period of time. And that's going to lead to a rise in the Middle East and a fall in the West, the U.S. and Russia excluded, and the rest of continental Europe is going to be fighting for their survival. It'll be very interesting. It'll be tragic to watch. Granted, it'll be tragic, but you know, I can, I can shed a tear from this side of the ocean and perhaps, perhaps if the Europeans realize what they're dealing with, that is collapse and decline, instead of sort of ignoring the decline in favor of banning together with Western solidarity to ward off decline, if they realize they're in decline, they can do something about it. The Russians have taken action. So the Hungarians have taken action. The Swedes took action. The French uh, are probably taking action, maybe. So once you notice the decline, you start to get people calling for action, and eventually that will get you action. So perhaps the decline is not necessarily an inevitability. Although, uh, well, a, a perpetual decline is not an inevitability. The decline is sort of baked in. It's a, it's a bit late in the process. It's a bit late in the game for the Europeans. But it's not too late. It's not too late, but yeah, that is a, a very interesting, very interesting observation I have made with regards to the populations. And I get, I haven't quite determined whether or not I believe Africa is going to have the greatest century or not that I'll just have to observe them. Africa is a bit of a wild card for me, uh, as I am not too well versed on my African history. So I can't make uh pretty solid judgments that and the geography of africa works against everyone living in africa so we'll have to wait and see but i think that we're going to be seeing not the eastern century not the asian century but the the arab century that's what i think we're going to be seeing that's going to be good news for a lot of people 
and bad news for a whole lot of other people. But I will digress, as that is all I have for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my extended geopolitical podcast. These, These trends are something. These trends are something. We see the world changing before our very eyes. And sometimes we can see it and don't even get the whole picture until sometime later on when the picture becomes so obvious you feel goofy for not seeing it earlier. But however these things happen, however these things play out, we'll have fun watching these changes together. Now I've been your host, Haishan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.